Welcome to Med Together. This is a podcast by the people, for the people, as it were. My name is Khana. I'm a med student in New York. This podcast deals with a lot of med school topics, starting from the basic sciences and building its way up, and hopefully it'll be a bit of review that can help y'all consolidate and synthesize important information and maybe phrase it in a way that's easy to understand. By the way, if you're pre-med or you're a nursing student or you're just interested in science medically topics and you're not in healthcare at all, you're totally welcome to. We don't discriminate. If you're interested, you're cool. Ready to rock? Let's do this. Hey everyone, welcome if you're new. Welcome back to those of you still on the journey with me. This episode is all about the pancreas. A little more detail on the hormonal regulation of our metabolism. This is going to be a quick one. We'll touch just a little bit about how we can use this physiology knowledge to target diabetes, but we'll really come back to diabetes much more strongly when we talk about the endocrine system, which will hopefully be soon. All right, so just to begin back at the beginning, and I know you've heard this before, but repetition never hurts. How is blood glucose regulated? Insulin is the primary regulator in the fed state, and it pushes the body into an anabolic state of glucose uptake, usage, and storage. In the fasting state, the main purpose of counter-regulation is to release glucose back into the blood, and this is done by glucagon. Cortisol, catecholamines, and growth hormones are also going to contribute to promoting glucose release back into the blood, and both insulin and glucagon are regulated by other hormones. Insulin can counter-regulate glucagon and decrease its secretion, and GIP and GLP, which are released by the GI system, and we'll talk about them, will increase insulin secretion and decrease glucagon secretion. What are the systemic effects of insulin? So we're going to have increased uptake of glucose in the liver, muscle, and adipose tissue, and increased storage by muscle and liver. Brain and kidneys are actually not dependent on insulin for glucose uptake, so they're going to pretty much ignore insulin. And specifically talking about muscle, insulin is going to put muscle into an anabolic building state. So it's going to increase glucose entry, glycogen synthesis, amino acid uptake, protein synthesis. You're going to have decreased catabolism of protein, decreased release of gluconeogenic amino acids, increased ketone uptake, increased potassium uptake, which increases glucose utilization. This is actually why point of interest, you can sometimes give IV insulin and glucose in urgent hyperkalemia because it pushes potassium into the cells. Fun fact. Effects of insulin on the liver, again, these are going to be anabolic, so it increases glucose usage and storage, it decreases glucose output, so it means it's going to decrease gluconeogenesis, increase glycogen synthesis, decrease glycogen breakdown, increase glycolysis, it increases protein and lipid synthesis, decreases ketone synthesis, and decreases transport of glucose out of the cell. These are all things we know already. Finally, we'll get to the effect of insulin on adipose tissue, and a lot of these things will mean more to you after we talk about lipid metabolism, but such as life. There's going to be increase of fatty acid synthesis, increase of glycerol phosphate synthesis, increased triglyceride deposition, increased glucose entry, activates lipoprotein lipase. It's going to inhibit hormone-sensitive lipase and increase, again, potassium uptake, increase fat synthesis, decreases free fatty acids in the plasma, and decreases plasma triglyceride. Now, what's the job of glucagon? So this guy mostly acts on the liver. It reduces storage, essentially. So it's going to increase glycogenolysis, increase gluconeogenesis, increase hepatic glucose production and ketogenesis, so glucose and ketones in the blood increase. Again, this happens physiologically when plasma glucose dips and the body feels like it's fasted and needs to liberate energy stores. Catecholamines and glucocorticoids are also going to help mobilize free fatty acids and encourage protein catabolism in peripheral muscles. So how do beta cells know when to produce insulin? And maybe more importantly, how do they know when to stop? So in the pancreas, glucose enters the beta cells via GLUT2, and ATP is generated via glycolysis, like in any other cell. But what happens here is kind of cool. The ATP inactivates the ATP-sensitive potassium channel. This inactivation depolarizes the membrane and opens voltage-gated calcium channels. The influx of calcium causes a fusion of the insulin granules, 
and release of insulin into the blood. Now, if this sounds familiar, the calcium binding and the fusion of the granules, and like, where did I ever hear this before? This is very similar to what happens to acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction. Calcium binds and helps the vesicles fuse with the membrane and release something into the blood. So we just said that they're insulin granules, but how are these insulin granules made? So insulin starts out as pre-pro-insulin, and then the N-terminus gets cleaved and it becomes pro-insulin, which then gets put into the vesicles. And once inside the vesicles, the C-peptide is cleaved, leaving insulin dipeptide con connected by a disulfide bridge. This method of producing insulin makes sure that you only have active insulin where you want it, because with the C-peptide, it's basically inactive, so that if it escapes before it gets packaged into a granule, it can't really do much. Within the mature granule, insulin is actually bound in a crystalline structure with zinc and calcium, which some think may be important in the sorting process. What do I mean by the sorting process? The insulin is produced and it's put into vesicles, which then get sorted by the Golgi into special granules away from constitutive circulation. Most proteins that are sorted by the Golgi into vesicles just get secreted. These ones get put into a readily releasable pool at the membrane. And then there's also some granules that are held in storage. And we don't know exactly how this works, but this system is unique to pancreas beta cells. So much so that fibroblasts, even when we transgenically give them the ability to produce insulin, they can't do this regulated secretion. We would love to be able to differentiate stem cells into functional beta cells. This would really help us with treatment and maybe even cure of type 1 diabetes. But so far, we haven't quite figured it out yet. Now, because the insulin and the C-peptide both exist inside the vesicle, they're secreted in proportion to each other. So you can actually use C-peptide as a measure of endogenous insulin production in a type 1 diabetic. So again, how is the regulation done? So this comes down to the glucokinase, the hexokinase 4. This hexokinase is not saturated at normal blood glucose levels. So the more glucose comes in, the more it gets phosphorylated, and that corresponds to the increase in ATP. Because it's not easily saturated, it can continue to respond even at high levels. And we know that this hexokinase starting to phosphorylate glucose and trigger this process of secreting insulin is important to regulation because there is a condition called MODI, mature onset diabetes of youth, which is caused by a mutation that changes the set level so that the glucokinase responds at the wrong level. For example, if the glucokinase is, start, is supposed to start kicking in when blood glucose is at like 5 millimolar, it somehow has its set point altered so that it only kicks in at let's say 10 millimolars. So everything else is completely intact, but it's just responding at the wrong set point. And you get hyperglycemia, which is diabetes from this. From this genetic dysfunction of the hexokinase, we can infer how important the function of the hexokinase is. Now, I've kind of mentioned this before, but I want to emphasize that there are two phases of insulin secretion. There's the pre-docked vesicles, which get released first. And then if the levels of blood glucose stay high, the reserve vesicles dock and fuse. So there are these two waves, and the second one only gets released if it's really needed. And this insulin secretion can be augmented by metabolites and by hormones. Why would we want to augment insulin secretion? For diabetics, especially type 2 diabetes. This form of treatment would not be addressing the etiology of type 2 diabetes, but it does help in battling the insulin resistance. So just a quick second now to define type 1 versus type 2 diabetes for anybody who's forgotten. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune destruction of beta cells, so that insulin can't be produced. And these people are necessarily insulin dependent because they don't have any beta cells or they have very few beta cells, not enough beta cells to produce the amount of insulin that they need. Type 2 diabetes is an issue of insulin sensitivity, or it really, I should say, insulin insensitivity, which we won't really go into how it develops right now because it's kind of complex, but suffice it to say, that insulin is being produced, but it's pretty much being ignored by the cells. So if we can get the beta cells to do more production, it can help with glycemic control. 
So how do we do that? One fairly old class of drugs, which are not used as much anymore, is the sulfonylureas. And these can cause a depolarization and cause insulin release. So it basically mimics the effects of ATP. The reason we don't like these and we don't use them so much anymore, they can be a little dangerous because they're completely uncoupled from the blood glucose. So we can have big swings into hypoglycemic territory if we give sulfonylureas, if we dose them too high or if we dose them wrong. What we like better now is taking advantage of incretins. What are incretin hormones? So the main incretin hormones are GLP-1 and GIP, which are released by the GI cells in response to food ingestion, and they're heavily involved in glucose metabolism. They're degraded by DPP-4 enzymes. They're not very long-lived, but we find that GLP-1 secretion is deficient in type 2 diabetes, and there's also GIP resistance. And we can demonstrate this incretin effect by the difference in insulin secretion when glucose is administered orally versus IV. Oral glucose generates a much bigger insulin secretion because of the incretin released from the gut when you intake glucose orally. So how do incretins work? This is a feed-forward system. The GLP-1 and the GIP tell the beta cells to get ready for loss of glucose. So they kind of warn it that loss of glucose is coming and the beta cells get ready and they can produce a bigger wave of insulin when the glucose comes. And there is a somewhat blunted incretin effect in type 2 diabetes, really seen more in the GIP. And we don't know the exact mechanism of how these incretins work. We know that they use GPCRs, but we don't know the exact mechanism. However, we can use this pharmacologically in type 2 diabetes. There's a lot of potential for more insulin that, that can get secreted because only 2 to 5% of insulin in the, in the pancreas is released at any given time, and the rest ends up getting degraded. So for people with type 2 diabetes, if we can augment the amount of insulin that's secreted, that would be great because all that insulin is there. It's hanging out. It just needs to be encouraged to be released. And the GLP-1 agonists have been really good at this. One challenge is that they have a very short half-life, so injecting them is not really that useful. But we have GLP-1 mimetics now, which have longer half-lives, and they're also inhibitors of DPP-4, which is the protease that degrades them, and that can increase the incretin half-life as well. While we're on diabetes drugs, I just want to mention the SGLT inhibitors. So these SGLTs, if you remember, we talked about them. These are in the kidney and in the gut. SGLT2 particularly is in the kidney, SGLT1 in the intestine, and these can be inhibited in diabetes treatment. So if you inhibit SGLT2 transporters, that means the glucose is not going to be reabsorbed from the urine, so you're going to dispose of some glucose in the urine. This is fairly effective, but you do get an increase in UTIs because you're passing very sugary urine, which is makes bacteria extremely happy and yeast extremely happy. SGLT1 inhibitors inhibit glucose uptake from the intestines, and these are actually pretty well tolerated. So now we've been talking a lot about insulin regulation. What about glucagon regulation? We actually don't know much about glucagon regulation. We think that insulin regulates it, but we actually don't know very much about how glucagon is regulated and even how it signals. We know it's made as a prehormone, which interestingly is the same pre-prohormone as GLP-1 and GLP-2. So the proteases in this specific cells decide which one you cleave this same prehormone to. It either becomes glucagon or it becomes GLP-1 and 2. All right, now just to come back to one final fairly important point, which is which cells are insulin dependent. So liver and muscle cells need insulin to tell them to store glucose by making glycogen. Remember we talked about the dephosphorylation driving glycogen synthase and making glycogen phosphorylase less effective, all of that. That's all insulin and glucagon driven. Another really important point that I want to make is that insulin increases uptake of glucose in muscle and adipose tissue because these cells use the GLUT4 transporter, which is an insulin sensitive insulin-dependent transporter. 
So if there are defects in insulin action, you're going to have hyperglycemia, accumulation of glucose in the blood, because there's going to be decreased uptake in the muscle and the adipose tissue, and it's also not going to inhibit glucose production by the liver as it should. Let's talk about the GLUT4. GLUT4 is found in fat and muscle, and unlike other glutes, this one is regulated by insulin. So you're rapidly going to get a huge increase in glucose uptake when insulin is released. Now, we used to think that GLUT4 was just gated by insulin. Now we know that this is not true. In fact, GLUT4 is sequestered in the cell. And when the insulin receptor is activated, the vesicles in which it's sequestered get recruited to the membrane, and that allows for more absorption. So in the absence of insulin, GLUT4 gets popped back into its vesicles and put back in isolation. So it's not that GLUT4 gets, turn, gets turned on and off. The transporter is always active. It's just whether it's at the membrane or not. And this is, like I said, occurs both in muscle and in fat. So... In fact, in a fed state, about 80% of your glucose is going to go to your muscles. So if this insulin system is not working, you're going to end up with a lot more glucose in your blood than you want. Also, muscle contraction is going to cause your muscles to take out more glucose. And this intrinsic regulation, in addition to the extrinsic insulin-based system, is intact in insulin resistance. Okay, my friends, that brings us to the end of carbohydrate metabolism. And I'm sure some of you are not sorry to say goodbye. Next episode, we're going to jump into lipid metabolism, which may be more fun just because you're not pre-traumatized, but either way, get excited because it's going to be great. If you like the show and it's helping you in your learning or just plain interesting, please consider rating it and sharing it with your friends and always feel free to reach out to me at medtogether26 at gmail.com and tell me how I can make it even better for you. Catch you in the next episode.